0: I get emotional every time but we got there and the counselor said your daughter has a letter she wants you to read and she handed us a letter and the first sentence was when I was 12 years old I was molested at Crockett Park a, a park right here in Brentwood happened on 4th of July She was 12 almost 13 and we'd gone as a family for a 4th of July celebration in that particular year she and her friends wanted to go by themselves and we thought well it's safe it's Brentwood we dropped them off and her letter just said that she had been molested and it, it, fr- the rest of the letter was a blur and I was just so hurt by that because another thing she said in the letter was she was afraid to tell us because she didn't want to hurt us and She didn't want to get in trouble. And and Colleen, I thought that I would have said we had the type of family that if anything happens, our kids could talk to us. Sure, we can talk. It's an open Yeah, absolutely. But perhaps I wasn't explicit enough with that. And, you know, in the mind of a 12-year-old who's just gone through this kind of trauma, um, they, they don't process it in the same way. And her she, she later said in her testimony when she got home that night, she sat in her bed and thought, that's it. My die's been cast. I'm a, I'm a bad girl.
1: You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. Here's our host, Colleen Swindall thompson
2: Welcome back to another podcast recording or video recording wherever you're watching this with Insight for Living's Reframing Ministries. Today, my guest, I've got to tell you, he has a life-changing story, um, one that you will not believe. It so relates closely to where we are today, in fact, with wars that are going on, rumors of wars, um, mental health issues, challenges with families. Randy, you pretty much cover the gamut of that. So, Randy Hartley, you are my guest. Thank you for being with us today.
0: Well, Colleen, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
2: You're in Nashville now and have been there for 38 years, but took a little bit of a sidetrack with a story that is now a major motion picture and a wonderful book called Beautifully Broken. Tell me how that came about.
0: Well, uh, I'm a financial planner and never knew that I'd be an author and a movie producer, but kind of, I guess you'd say God laid a story on us that um, even I couldn't ignore and it, it, it became Beautifully Broken. And it's our family story, as well as the story of some great friends of ours, the Muzerwas, who were refugees from Rwanda, and how they led us into Rwanda to meet a girl that we've been sponsoring, and how God kind of took the the bare threads of those three lives and wove them together, and and a divine tapestry that uh, just, Hollywood wrote it, you'd say, that that can't be true, but, uh, you know, I lived it and and just took notes along the way. I guess it kind of started, you know, we were living the American dream in the suburbs of Nashville, thought everything was going well, uh, had a family of three and a dog in the house, and good job. And then in my daughter, my middle daughter's middle teen years started rebelling. And, you know, any dad who's raised a teenage girl has probably seen degrees of rebellion. And I had an older daughter, but uh, it, it obviously this started becoming worse and worse. And And it's all the things that parents don't want. It's, it's, you know, the drugs and the alcohol, the rebellion. And we were doing what I thought worked It worked before, as far as grounding and taking keys away from cars and doing all the things you want. And nothing was working until one weekend. um, It all reached a crescendo and uh, my daughter didn't come home at night. And, um, you know, if you've ever been a parent or a dad driving around at, 3 a.m. looking for a daughter who's 16 um y- you don't find many more lonely places than that um i i specifically remember at one point pulling the car over and just praying and saying god I-, I can't do this i i'm a man who tries to stay in control and think i know how to control things and i realized this was this was beyond me and uh after a couple of days of not knowing where she was to get the police involved one Sunday, I finally, that Sunday, I finally texted her one more time and said, Andrea, please come home. Let mom and I help you. I know you need help. And who knows why, but 30 seconds later, she turned her phone back on and sent a text saying, you're right. I do need help. And I'm coming home.
2: You mentioned at the beginning, living the American dream, financial, yeah. financially y'all were so stable. Um, yeah a beautiful home, three kids, you, all three of them were writing people or different other children in other countries involved with church. Everyone would say from the outside, it looked like there was no problem. And now you're saying the police were involved. My daughter disappeared. I didn't know where she was, drugs, alcohol, you name it. Was that just a pit?
0: Uh, Well, it was. and, and, Quite honestly, with society, you know, you're kind of trying to hide it, you're trying to figure it out, and you're thinking, what have I done wrong, and uh, what's going on, and why are the things that were working, why are they not working? It, it's all the questions that any parent would have. And frankly, you viewing yourself, man, I failed, what have I done wrong, and and just all those questions. And uh, another thing I like to, to mention as I talk on this subject too is those circumstances are so tough on a marriage because, you know, you've only got so much emotional energy that you can give. And when it starts getting sucked up by a child who's going through whatever they're going through, um, it, it really is difficult. And um, emotions are seem like for 18 months, we're just barely below the surface. Um, it, it was just, it was a very difficult time. And yet, we might have been trying to maybe ignore or not taking seriously enough what the issues were. Yeah. And when she disappeared that weekend, I couldn't ignore it anymore. Yeah. And so when she did come home, we had called and thankfully there's a great, um, 30 day kind of, uh, intense in-house counseling place here in town. And we put her in it just to try to figure out what was happening. And certainly drugs and alcohol were a part of it. Um, and three weeks into that program, my wife and I were active, going out twice a week, involved in the family uh, therapy and all the things. Felt like we were making pretty good progress. And then one day we went out there and met in the counselor's office. I, I get emotional every time. But we got there and the counselor said, your daughter has a letter she wants you to read. And she handed us a letter. And the first sentence was, When I was 12 years old, I was molested at Crockett Park, a a park right here in Brentwood, happened on 4th of July. She was 12, almost 13, and we'd gone as a family for a 4th of July celebration, and that particular year, she and her friends wanted to go by themselves, and we thought, well, it's safe, it's Brentwood. We dropped them off, and her letter just said that she had been molested, and the rest of the letter was a blur, and I was just so hurt by that yeah because another thing she said in the letter was she was afraid to tell us because she didn't want to hurt us and she didn't want to get in trouble and and colleen i thought that i would have said we had the type of family that if anything happens our kids could talk to us
2: sure we can talk about it's an open door
0: yeah absolutely but perhaps I wasn't explicit enough with that. And, you know, in the mind of a 12-year-old who's just gone through this kind of trauma, um, they, they don't process it in the same way. And her, she, she later said in her testimony when she got home that night, she sat in her bed and thought, that's it. My die's been cast. I'm a, I'm a bad girl. <sighs> and, um, and what you learn later, too, is, is how devastating that is to self-esteem and to self-worth
2: it's just so devastating. In fact, Kirk Thompson's book, "The Soul of Shame," when, yes. when someone goes through a, an identity or something that pierces the soul, right, with a shameful yes experience, which had was no fault of her own, but the right. shame that comes over—it's like a black veil covers yes everything.
0: Well, you you know what you learn is she believed the lies because. Shame is where the devil wants you because he keeps you in that spot where you're by yourself. And then you start listening to the lies yes. that it was somehow your fault, that you, you were complicit in it, that, that you aren't worth anything. Um, and then when you view yourself as worthless, you treat yourself as worthless. Mm. And that's where the drugs and the alcohol, it's just numbing the pain Ooh. and hiding the pain and, and almost self-fulfilling of this. See, I knew I was worthless. I mean, yeah. that's the spiral we're in. And, And that's why when we got the letter, as devastating as it was, in a way, it at least explained how we got to where we were and gave us a starting point to build back from. You know, I always say it's kind of like an alcoholic admitting that they're an alcoholic. It doesn't solve the problem. Yes. But at least gives you a starting point. And I felt like we had a starting point to build back from. And so. Yes.
2: The problem is really never the problem. It's a symptom of the problem.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so we did. And we were blessed with some great counselors and family counseling. And I was blessed with the financial resources to be able to go through that and start unpacking and learning what, you know, been going on for really probably three or four years, but more intensely the last uh, 18 months. And I encourage people, it's a family counseling issue at that point. It's not Andrea's counseling. It's the whole family and not just us, but the other siblings. Yes. Mentioned earlier how, when you have a child going through trouble, it soaks up so much of that emotional energy and unbeknownst to us, it starts impacting the other children as well yeah. because they're seeing what's happening. They're seeing mom and dad get involved. They're saying that, Oh, I better not tell them my issue because they've got their hands full. There's a whole litany of things and I can't encourage people enough to seek that help. Even if you're not sure you need it. Um, I'd rather seek it not need it than need it, not seek it, I guess. But anyway, in the midst of all that, what we did discover is that um, it's also not a linear process. I mean, recovery is not linear. It is definitely a two-step forward, one step back, sometime a one-step forward and two-step back, and don't be discouraged. But in the midst of that, one day I came home, and the house was back in chaos again. And I was just so tired of coming home to a house that was felt like it was in chaos and just thinking, my goodness, can we not get past all this? And in the midst of that, going through my mail, I saw a letter from Emma Hosa. And Emma Hosa was a girl that we've been supporting through Compassion International for 10 years. My wife and I had gone to an Amy Grant concert, of all things, and Amy invited everybody to look under their chair and find an envelope and ask us all to consider sponsoring a child. And so that Christmas, 10 years prior, each of our children had uh, written Compassion to, to ask to sponsor a child And Andrea, my middle daughter, was assigned a Mahosa from Rwanda. And they had been corresponding for those 10 years. And and in the midst of my frustration, there was that letter from her. And I don't know why. I just said, that's it. I'm taking my daughter to Rwanda. And I tell people all the time, God knows why I thought that was an answer. But God knew exactly why that was an answer. Now,
2: go Um, back for just a second, because she had been writing her for 10 years. Yeah. And you had a gentleman come to the church during that time didn't you or was that after
0: right right so what had happened was when we decided to go to Rwanda I thought how are we going to work all this out so I called my friend William Muzerwa yeah. so the was were a family that had escaped the genocide oh. uh he had first he was a, a, a supervisor with a Rwandan coffee company which in Rwanda was the uh you know that was the the product the, the Rwandan dream that was you know exxon and ge and google and apple all rolled into one it was their number one exporter and he had a job with them and then i mean he and his wife were great christians and leaders in the church and when there were genocide hit because of all these things they were targeted and um you know barely escaped with their lives none of which by the way i really understood or knew at the time i just knew that he had moved in our neighborhood his son was my age I was a Cub Scout leader, and his son was in my den, and and I'd gotten to know him. um, Because we sponsored a girl from Rwanda, it gave us a common thread. But when this all boiled to a a head, I called William and said, William, I need to take my daughter to Rwanda. And um, looking back, it was a blessing that I didn't fully understand what happened to his family because I probably wouldn't have had the gumption or the nerve or would have thought it was inappropriate to ask them to lead us back. But in my naivety, I asked him to, and it just so happened, his wife was leading a mission trip to Rwanda that summer for the first time. Wow. And so they were able to, I was able to pay for their trip so they would go with us early, lead us back to Rwanda to meet the little girl. And it, it was far more transformational than I would have ever dreamed. And that's the beauty of God sometimes is we might not understand, but if we'll be faithful, he'll show you the why. Well, you
2: did say at one point in the book, don't put a period where God has put a comma.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. And
2: you had a whole lot of commas in those years of rebellion and not understanding and her becoming so self-harming and and unreachable and you couldn't make sense of it. So then you get on a plane, you go to Rwanda. That was her request, I think. It wasn't. Even well, yours at first was it, or?
0: Well, I had I had told her I said I want to take you to Rwanda, and she had she enthusiastically um, accepted that because um, she had she had already admitted her issues, and we were working on them. It just wasn't as smooth. But I got to tell you, the transformation really started before that trip, even because I told her I said you need to pay for this trip, and you're going to pay for the trip by volunteering at Legacy Mission Village. So William and Abrali Maseru, who had escaped the genocide had started a refugee ministry called Legacy Mission Village. They knew what they'd been through. And Nashville actually has a lot of refugees from all over the world. And they started a wonderful ministry that I wasn't fully involved with at the time, serving those refugees. So I told Andrew, you've got to go volunteer there to pay for your trip. And again, in my um, naive way of thinking, I wanted her to see the people that were escaping the genocide yeah. or escaping uh, circumstances throughout the world. Maybe she'd see how fortunate she was and almost more materialistically understand how blessed she was. Well, God had a way better plan than I did because when she started volunteering there, she later said the the, the first day she went because I made her and the next thousand times is because she wanted to.
2: Isn't that unbelievable? Because volunteering and giving back in a recovery process, across the board, research says that needs to be involved.
0: Colleen, I couldn't agree more how helping others leads to healing because her mother and I poured all the love and care we could into her, but it's almost like we're supposed to. So it didn't count. But she said once she started going and those children would run up to her and say, Miss Andrew, we're glad you're here. We love you. She just realized, number one is how can I be worthless if these little kids can't wait to see me every day? And it really kind of she began to see a purpose in her life that that I do have something to give, that those lies I've been listening to for four years that I'm worthless and I have nothing to give, she realized that wasn't true. And so she really, that, I I have to tell you helping others and that volunteering was such a genesis to her recovery. And it certainly was complimented by all the counseling, but man, that gave it a boost and it really set the table for our trip to Rwanda. So her mind was in the right spot.
2: So she was volunteering for how long before y'all took off to Rwanda?
0: Yeah, she was volunteering for about three months before okay. we went. And okay. So she'd done, done the volunteering and, uh, and really made her more excited to go on the trip. And as I say, get her mind in the right spot. And when we go to Rwanda, we didn't know what to expect. And, you know, it's a great unknown for us. But I got to tell you, the first day we landed, we went with a Briley Mazira to meet some other people in the church. She worked for the Presbyterian Church. And invited us to travel around and and she was seeing people she hadn't seen for 15 years, because this was 15 years after the genocide. Yeah. And that first evening, coming back across the city of Kigali, she told our driver, wait, turn here, turn here. And we stopped in front of this nice white home with a big wall in front of it. And she said, That's it. That's the house that we lived in. And then she almost got in a trance and she said, That's the ditch where the militia came that they pulled us out and laid us in. She said, I don't know how long we lay there because how do you count minutes when you're waiting to die? But we had guns and machetes to our head and they were talking to William and thinking that we had a child in the rebel's army, but our oldest was our 12-year-old daughter, Emma. And William was pleading with them and all of a sudden a gunshot rang out and a uh, militiamen fell over and the rest went to a hill and started exchanging gunfire. And she said, after some period of time, William slowly gathered us. We went back in the house and we prayed all night and we left the next day. And I've never been back here until this moment.
1: Visit us at reframingministries.com for all of Colleen's interviews, articles, recommended resources, and more. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and receive our free five-day video devotional series where Colleen provides pointers for navigating daily life and struggles. So
2: they were in a ditch hearing gunshots and people dying all around them.
0: And we were parked in front of that ditch with her telling us the story the first day we're in Rwanda. And that's when I really realized, number one, what a gift it was going to be to have a Bradley there. Someone who had been through it and, and had such a deep understanding and all gave us a bigger understanding of what they went through and just realized, boy... God's got more in store for us on this trip than I had, than I had really realized. Yes. And we went through many, many more of these types of stories in just five days that I learned more about the Mazeras and realized this trip was being a revelation for them as well as us. And then it came time to go visit Amahosa, the girl that we've been sponsoring. And 10 years, 10 or 15 years, Yeah, 10 years, we've been sponsoring her from age six to age 16. She's the same age as my daughter. And in a funny kind of way, I began to fear that maybe that would be a letdown because the first five days had been just such a, uh, just even transformational, just hearing more about the Missouri story. But Compassion met us, and they drove us out to the little village of Morumbi, and um, we, we met with the people that were there. We found out we were the first sponsors to ever go out to that village. Not that Compassion doesn't bring a lot of sponsors, but they tend to stay closer to the city, and after a few minutes in came this beautiful little girl that we'd seen pictures for ten years. Oh my god it was it was it was unbelievable. And so we met her, and we we piled back in the van to drive out to her home, just a couple miles down a little dirt road. And when we got there, the family came pouring out, including her father. And the reason that struck me is we'd been told for years from compassion, her father was in prison. And here he was. So I thought, well, compassion got that part wrong. So we were invited in the house, and O'Brien Mazira is our translator. And the first thing the father said was, he said, I went to jail in 1994. That was the year of the genocide. He said, I just got out one month ago, 2009. That's the year that Rwanda had something they called the Great Reconciliation. They realized they couldn't keep 10% of their population in jail. And so anybody who'd admit to what they did and ask for forgiveness, if you were just a minor perpetrator you'd be let out for time served so i knew enough to know that so i don't know what he did but going to jail in 94 and coming out in 09 i knew he had to be involved in genocide but what he said was this when i went to jail i prayed to god saying how is my family going to survive god help me take care of my family and he looked at me and he said god sent me you So I have to thank you for being the faithful father to my family and providing for them when I couldn't be here. And And they lived in just a
2: shack. I mean, in Uh, the movie, it's just a shack. It is.
0: It's just a mud brick home. It's just a little, you know, dirt floor, reed mat, mud brick home. And um, it was probably when he said that I realized his trip wasn't just for Andrea; it was really for me. Because I got to tell you, I felt like anything but a faithful father. Because a father's job is to provide for and protect the family. And I I hadn't been able to do that. And and whether you could argue I was able to or not in the circumstances, having dropped her at 4th of July, it doesn't matter. just, you know, in my mind, that was my job and and it hadn't worked.
2: So your self-message was, I have failed. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So for this man to tell me that I've been a faithful father and that what we've been doing for him and held his family together, the irony did not, I didn't miss the irony that while my family was falling apart, we were holding their family together.
2: Let's not miss, that was a 14 year process. I mean, so many times, like you said, don't put a period where God has a comma. That's right. a long time. And you're That's battling long. defeat and feeling like a failure. Yes. And here he says, your family is the reason mine is still alive.
0: Right, right.
2: What a God
0: yeah. moment. Well, and then he followed it up by saying that when, when uh, he and his wife, when they first got married, couldn't have children, and they were afraid they would be barren. Hmm. And he said, but we prayed and we're about to give up hope, and we had a child. Amahoza. but in rwanda you don't name your child until after birth much like in the bible and so many times you give your child a name that's an aspiration or an inspiration so there's a lot of children named you know hope or you know faithful or uh, beautiful
2: there's great meaning to it for sure yeah
0: but what he said was we named her amahoza because omahosa in kinyarwanda means the redeemer because she redeemed our faith in god and i thought I'm not here in the backwoods of Rwanda looking for the tall or the beautiful or the funny. We were led to the redeemer. Um,
2: that looked nothing like you would have anticipated.
0: No, no. And that's when I just realized this was, um, it, it, that God had planted a seed 10 years prior at a Ada Grant concert where brochures for compassion were scattered like mustard seeds and one of those mustard seeds fell on fertile ground. And it was a little girl named Amahoza who had led our family there and really kind of gave us that, 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 uh, that thread to hold on to. Um, that ended up becoming our rescue line. And it was also not lost on me that we were being led back there by a Tutsi family who had been forced to escape the genocide And yet they're leading us back to meet a family of a Hutu perpetrator who'd been jailed for 15 years. And I thought only God can take this cast of characters, you know, a a financial planner from Brentwood, a refugee of Rwanda that we've been supporting financially in their their, uh, not-for-profit to go meet a Hutu perpetrator whose, you know, whose cause had forced their family to leave. And yet God was able to take those three threads and pull them together in a way where it's you could argue each family kind of rescued the other. It, it's just it was just amazing. Um, yeah, you know, the amazing that, that
2: part. Process. I'm sorry to inter to intro or I'm sorry to interrupt you on that. What's amazing is from my perspective, seeing the house in Brentwood, seeing how God had given you such wonderful blessing financially and otherwise, right. and yet we don't think, well, that place over in the middle of nowhere that's a cardboard dirt yeah. floor. Has redeemed my life.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's Abs- the Jesus story. That is the Jesus story. And that the refugees who came here with nothing are the people who gave us everything in terms of the enrichment. Because the rest of the story is in that first trip, it was really just me and my daughter and a Bradley Mazerwa. I mean, the Mazerwas had five children and it was kind of a last minute thing, and my family was busy. and. And and my only thought was, man, I wish my whole family could experience what we're experiencing. And we were blessed two years later to be able to go back when uh, uh, Legacy Mission Village sponsored their own mission trip. And this time, the whole Missouri family went with our family. And on that particular trip, we were out in William's hometown. And William just knew that his family had all died in the genocide, didn't know the circumstances, but knew that they had died. Mm -hmm. And his was visiting a cousin one of his only living relatives and we went to visit the gravesite of his mom and sister and aunts and so we those of us on the mission trip about 15 of us stayed back while they visited and when they came back our, my family my whole family ended up in a vehicle being driven just by william and we were the back of a five car caravan and not a quarter mile from the gravesite as we made a turn william stopped and said wait a minute that's my mom's best friend Now, he hadn't been in Romero in 17 years, and as we passed another one of these little mud huts, an old lady came out that was his mother's best friend. So he stopped the car and talked to her for about 10 minutes and got back in the car, and his mind was a million miles away, the hour drive back to Kigali. And that night at Bible study, he told everybody that when he met his mom's best friend, his mom told him that his aunt was culpable in his mother's death. And he went on to explain that his aunt was actually an adopted Hutu girl that his grandfather had adopted back in the 1940s and was raised as a sister to his mother. He said, I remember her feeding me, and she was my aunt. So he said, I've got to go see her tomorrow. Please pray for us. I want to go figure out what happened to mom. Well, I, I couldn't imagine those circumstances. But the next day we went and did our mission work, working on a fixing up a church. And that night at Bible study, right as it started, the Mazero family had come back. And we went through our Bible study. And at the end of it, William said, I told you I was going to go visit my aunt. He goes, I went to visit her. And she's very, very nervous. She waited for her sister-in-law to show up, her daughter-in-law to show up before she buys in the house. We gave her a gift and let her know that we came in peace And after talking about some old memories, I asked her, I said, I need to know what happened to mom. And she said, you don't want to know the story. And he said, I've got to know. And she told her that the mom and her sisters and one of William's sisters and the nieces and nephews had been holed up in a house for about a week trying to wait out the genocide and survive. And the aunt had gone to their house, knocked on the door and said, look, I know you're running out of food and water. You need to come with me. You'll be safe. I'm Hutu. They won't look at my house and she led them back to her house. And it was a setup that her two sons were there and slaughtered the whole family with machetes. I, I couldn't imagine hearing that news, but William's reaction was to look around and see in these mud huts, there's no running water, but there's a, there's a washstand with a pitcher. And he took the bowl from the washstand and he knelt in front of her with the pitcher of water and he washed her feet. Because oh, he Oh my
2: gosh, a woman yeah. complicit in his mother's yes. murder and family's murder and he right. washed her he,
0: feet. He, he felt the calling to wash your feet because he said, I knew the only way for her to move forward and for me to move forward and for our country to move forward was forgiveness. And he washed her feet to let her know that he forgave her. I got to tell you, when he told us that story in our Bible study, there was not a dry eye in the house. And I've been to lots of Bible studies. There will never be one more impactful than that night. And as a follow-up, two years later, we did another mission trip. And by now, he'd established a relationship with his aunt because, as he said, she was the only person alive that knew him when he was a little boy. And when he went back this next time, she said, do you remember what I promised you when you were here two years ago? And he said, no. And he, he was telling us again at a Bible study. He said, I told her, no, I don't remember. She said, I told you I hadn't been to church since 1994 because I felt unworthy because of what I'd done.
2: Oh, my goodness. But
0: when you wash my feet, I promise you I'd start going to church again. She said, I've been every Sunday since then. And more than that, the daughter-in-law who'd been there, one of the daughter-in-laws was Muslim. And she asked her, what would make a man do that? How could a man wash your feet after hearing that story? And she said, come with me and find out. The daughter-in-law started going to church with her and converted to Christianity.
2: It's just unbelievable, Randy.
0: So that's what William said. He goes, that's why we forgive. Our greatest job on earth is to save souls. And forgiveness allows people to save souls. It allows us to save souls. So I'm so grateful to the Mazera family, though, because... The entire time our family was there, and even two years later, we're still going through a healing process when we're with them. And just being able to see the grace in the circumstances in which they just live their faith. um, And and knowing the circumstances that they've lived through are far more traumatic than our own. It became a perfect mirror for us to know that if you just give it up and give it to Christ, you know, let God let go, um, that it really did become a wonderful uh, mirror for our own family to move forward. And for my daughter, Andrea, because as she said, you know, forgiving herself became the hardest person to forgive, yes. to forgive herself for not fighting back. You know, it's the typical victim. Why didn't I do more? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I scream? Why didn't I tell anybody? And she was able to then forgive herself. And that's where you get that full redemption is when you're, you can forgive yourself for for something that frankly there's nothing to forgive but you still feel that guilt and, and and let go and so um so the book beautifully broken and the story beautifully broken just tells these stories and more of just like you say this band of brothers of of a a, a subsistence farmer in rural rwanda and a coffee executive who had escaped the genocide and a good old financial planner from Greatwood and how god was able to take these lives and these stories and just Time together and, um, and hopefully make a difference. I mean, that's why I've done it is I just know our family is not alone. So many families go through trauma. And yet in our society, we're taught to hide it. You know, we, we hide all our bad things. We only put good things on Facebook and Instagram. We never or hardly ever talk about our troubles. And this past Easter, it hit me that you know, when, when Jesus in the resurrection, when he met his disciples, the first thing he did is he showed them his scars, not to remind him of the pain, but to remind him of his victory over it. And so when people say, you know, man, I just you're brave to show your scars, it's, it's, it's not to get kudos or sympathy or anything. It's really just to encourage people that, like Jesus, we're showing our family scars not to elicit sympathy or anything other than to show our victory over it. Because if our book was just broken, I'd have never write it, I'd never publish it. But it's beautifully broken because with God, He can take those broken pieces like stained glass and just put it back together to be more beautiful than it was before. And you know, the other thing I tell people is I I don't believe my God for one minute wanted my daughter to be molested. And I don't believe my God for one minute wanted the Mazero family to have their entire family slaughtered. But what I do believe is that I have a God that says, no matter what you've gone through, I can help you pick up those pieces and put them back together. And, and Briley Mazera has a wonderful saying, she says, God waste no pain if you let him make it your passion. And so here's a family who lost everything when they came to America. And their only goal was to start a refugee ministry to serve others who'd been in their same circumstances. And my daughter, who'd been broken and, and the way that she was for so many years, came back a purpose-driven person. Uh, went on to college, got a degree in international studies, learned Swahili, and moved to Africa for eight years, uh, starting in the mission field serving others. And and uh, I would say that their pain for both of them definitely became their passion. And I guess you could say beautifully broken is my passion project for um, producing the movie and writing the story that hopefully, if people out there find themselves in that broken spot, that they do see, it's a comma; it's not a period. that That it's a chapter, but their story's not written yet. They can change the ending of their of their story, and and you know, their mess can become their message, like mine. And and it's not over. And so many times, we're in that dark spot. We think that's like my daughter; that's where I belong, and that's where I'm going to be. And God says, No, I'm the light, and I can shine light on that brokenness and that darkness and show you a, a beautiful new path. And that's what I truly 100% believe is the story of our family and the Mazaras, and, and hopefully others hearing it and seeing it. Um, will get that encouragement to help maybe bump them onto that path a little quicker than they might've uh, otherwise gotten on it.
2: You know, Randy, as I hear you talk and as I see your expression, my thought as I watched the movie was um, life looked really, really perfect. Yeah. And that that appeared or it looked like that was a value that you had to look all together. And yeah. yet, now I'm talking to a man who is okay with tears, who is yeah. okay with saying, I, I thought we would go to minister and I was transformed. Yeah. Speak to that person who is at that dark place and yeah. their pride is being bashed and they're having to decide, am I going to trust God or am I just going to walk away? Because this is a mess.
0: Yes. Well, again, I go back to one of the first stories I told when I was a father driving around in the middle of the night and finally just pulled over and said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I've been a Christian growing up in the church, but I think that's the moment where I just realized uh, this is, I've got to hand this to God. I cannot do this. And You know, some people have asked, um, you know, when you're going through it, sometimes it's hard not to wonder, God, where are you? Why is this happening? What have I done wrong? And what I've learned is when you feel like you've been abandoned by God, he's not abandoned you. He might have gone before you to lay a path you can't yet see, but he's not abandoned you. And I really feel that's that's where we were um, when Andrew was 16 years old, is that he laid a path that I look backwards now, And I can see the Amy Grant concert to the sponsorship, to the trip to Rwanda, to the transformation of my daughter, to the way it connected us to the Mazera family, the way we're still involved with Legacy Mission Village. But I'm going to tell you, at that moment, it was just a mess. And um, so that is where you do have to trust. And the other thing I'll say is if you look in the Bible, the Bible is full of stories of people Mm -hmm. who were messes. And God, I think, loves to take those people because then all of a sudden your testimony has authority because you've been there, you know it, and you can be as authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, you you know, look at the the code of many colors when Joseph was thrown into the pit and abandoned by the family and sold into slavery and and it's just story after story like that moses wandering for 40 years and even before the burning bush with the mess of of his life and all the others and um because sometimes it's like one of the reasons we made the movie like we did and i told the book like we did is sometimes frankly i think christian movies are a little bit too cotton candy fluff oh
2: for sure yes yes they're not messy
0: enough (laughs) it's not messy (laughs) enough and i've got a problem i say a prayer and it's solved Mm. and while that's true understand that Sometimes we got a lot of ground to plow before we're ready to make that before we're ready to blossom. Yeah. And I think especially in America we don't like plowing ground. We we like it fixed now. And um
2: That's said from someone who probably was much of a fixer too. Oh. I've learned absolutely. how to plow ground. Yeah.
0: Yes. My job is to fix things. I was a financial planner. I work with businesses. I get involved. I look at their stuff and I fix it. Yeah. I don't say, let me work on this for five years or 10 years and I'll come back to you. We we got to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where we are. And yet I really believe that sometimes we don't, we're not patient to allow that ground to be plowed the way it needs to be mm-hmm. so that we're ready when God's ready in his time, not our time. And I'm an impatient person. I, my wife always tells me, I, I am, I would say one of my great faults is, is no patience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, the great doctor and the great Savior, our Lord, uh, knew how to take this guy who has no patience and force patience, and the story became more beautiful and and more redemptive uh, because of that. Uh, because of that patience, I believe.
2: Randy, as we come to a close, what? What is the biggest lesson or the biggest takeaway that you want to share with those yeah. who are hearing? With those who, as, as you quoted, even when we find ourselves in the deepest, darkest valley, God goes with us. Faith is seeing light with your heart when all your eyes see is darkness. Right. For, those pers- for those people who are like, it's all dark and it's yeah. not going to get lighter.
0: All I can say is I know and I've been there, but don't lose lose faith. And you will come out the other side if you stay faithful to it. And when you do come out the other side, you will have a greater authority and a greater testimony to make a greater difference at, at that moment. It's like a Briley said, let that pain become your passion and you're unstoppable. And then the other thing, Colleen, is something we said early on is when you're in that spot, it's hard to look outside yourself. It's easy to look inward and go, what's wrong with me and I have nothing to offer But I'm evangelistic that helping others leads to healing. That sometimes when you feel like you have nothing to give, that's what makes you qualified to be the best giver. And that once you start giving to others, and I don't care if it's an animal rescue, if it's working with the elderly, if it's volunteering at a school, find something that can spark at least a little interest. And if you'll start helping others, you'll start seeing your own self-worth. Because so many times in those dark places, It's our own self-worth and self-esteem that's shattered, and the devil has you where he wants you because he keeps telling you you're worthless, and he's wrong. And when you start helping others, you see that worth that you have to give, and you start to see, and that's what lets that light in. So those are two of the things that I really believe in, and that is have the patience that your pain will become your passion, and helping others leads to that healing. And then a final little side note is my whole point of telling all this was just to tell truth, and I'm not political in any way, but it is a fact that my friend William is a refugee who came here legally from Rwanda. And I don't know all the answers to all the problems of our nation right now, but all I know is this, I think our Lord and Savior calls on us to say when someone becomes our neighbor, it's our duty to treat them as we would ourselves and be a friend and a neighbor to them. And the refugee community that I serve here as chairman of legacy mission village, they hang on to the American dream and they believe in the American dream and they chase that American dream in a way that Americans should be envious. I, I hear so many Americans ready to give up on an American dream. And I'm telling you, here's people who absolutely buy into a hook line and sinker and, um, So again, I don't know all the answers to anything other than to say, when someone becomes my neighbor, I think it's my duty to reach out and serve them. And I will tell you, I am one blessed son of a gun Mm -hmm. for having done that.
2: Isn't that so amazing? And none of it is tied to money. None of it is tied to a location or possessions. Um, Start with washing feet. Yeah. I mean, what what an incredible picture of redemption that is for all of us to hear. Well, Randy, I just have to tell people, Please get the book, Beautifully Broken. It's an amazing story. The movie is so real. And I yeah. love that you showed the mess in it. And I yeah. love that you showed reality. So thank you for also encouraging us to press forward and embrace one another who God puts in our path. Yes. Embrace them because we never know what that story will lead to. Right. It's amazing. Randy, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful.
0: Thank you so much. So Thanks for having me and let me tell my story. And I hope uh, if someone will get beautifully broken, either the book or the movie, that, that maybe they'll be inspired. And maybe if they're in a dark spot, it'll help shine a little light uh, for their lives.
2: I'm certain it will, because it certainly did for us. So thank you for making that. Thank you for your time.
1: Enjoy today's podcast. We'd love to hear how you've been encouraged in our website comments and our podcast reviews. If you haven't connected with us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, we'd love to see you there. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.